Curious and Serious listeners, this is your co-host, Emma. Today, I've got a fascinating conversation with Ben Hearn, a licensed professional clinical counselor and practicing ketamine therapist out of Cincinnati, Ohio. In this episode, we cover a broad spectrum of topics, from queerness in the psychedelic space to navigating the academic obstacles around studying and researching psychedelics. And we also highlight Ben's personal experience coming into an already established ketamine infusion center, working with the anesthesiologist to change it into a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy clinic. And we finished today's conversation with some words of wisdom from Ben and a fascinating conversation about the future of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and what the role of a facilitator will really merit in terms of credentials and qualifications. As always, be sure to check out the timestamps in the description below for a more detailed breakdown of today's interview. Curious is Serious is Psychedelic Grads podcast where we interview students and professionals in the psychedelic space to better understand how they navigated their path from being curious about psychedelics to wanting to dedicate their career to psychedelics. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has let us keep the online psychedelic grad community platform free for all members and publish these epic conversations. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with Ben Hearn, and I hope that you find this conversation as informative and incredible as I did. So without further ado, here is Ben. Hi, Ben. Welcome to Psychedelic Grads Curious to Serious. Hey, Emma. I hope we can mind the sound of construction for today's podcast, but otherwise, it's a beautiful sunny day, and we're really glad to have you here. Wonderful. I'm, I'm glad to be here. We're a little overcast here in, in Cincinnati, Ohio today, but that's all right. So why don't you walk us through your academic journey into the psychedelic space and to wellness and therapy? Okay, yeah. So, so right now I am a PhD student in counselor education and supervision at the University of Cincinnati. And I'm also in the California Institute of Integral Studies, Psychedelic uh, Assisted Therapy and Research Grad Certificate Program. And I'm currently working um, with an anesthesiologist to build a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy clinic here in Cincinnati. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I've been aware of and intrigued in the potential of psychedelics to work with mental health and substance use disorders since I was an undergrad. And and for me, I, I kind of came to a lot of this stuff from my own experiences of coming out as a, a young, at that point I considered I used the term gay. Now I've just queer is much, much more appropriate for me these days. But at that point in time in, in undergrad, I was really kind of struggling coming out with spirituality and, you know, kind of finding myself in the world. I, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Georgia and, and grew up in the Bible Belt. So a lot of, you know, implicit messaging around the sexual orientation and, you know, religion and, and things that were and weren't okay there. And so early on, I, I got my start in kind of philosophy and psychology and really started learning a little bit more about some of the research that was kind of going on at Johns Hopkins. And at the time, I was I was really interested at sort of the, the intersection of you know, spirituality, religion, and increasingly becoming interested in the intersection between those and kind of science as well. And so all of this eventually kind of culminated in in my majoring in psychology, philosophy, and, and cognitive science there to really hit all three of those. And so at that point in time, you know, this was the like early 2010s. Yeah, I graduated in 2012 from undergrad. So, you know, the the environment was 
radically different than you know it was now. Maybe a couple dozen papers here and there at that point in time, but but nothing really groundbreaking. And so I, I had this interest and in, you know some background knowledge and ideas that like you know these things might be really helpful in working with mental health or substance use disorders. But like many folks, I didn't dare speak about that interest in the academy by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I was not courageous enough to write you know undergrad papers on the topic or things like that just yet. And so I, I kind of scrolled it away for a little while and decided that I really wanted to look at kind of more direct ways to work with individuals and, and help people. So I then went on to go get a master's in counseling, also here at the University of Cincinnati. And then I spent, well, actually, while I was there, I was I was able to start building a little bit of that courage and talking about psychedelics. I encountered a professor who, in our chemical dependency class showed us scare tactic videos, like dare sort of stuff. And nothing kind of gets me going as like righteous anger. Like, you know, <laughs> we know this doesn't work. We, we know that the information in here is not accurate. And so I started pushing back in some of my projects and you know, we, we were encouraged to do a, a hot topic in, you know, mental health. And so I, I did psychedelics as a, a treatment um, option in, in a chemical dependency class. And so started kind of testing the waters in that master's program with a couple class projects. Then I had a couple of years off again in between master's and the doctoral program where I was able to do a couple presentations at like counseling conferences on psychedelics, which was really exciting. The, the one the first one I did, we talked about kind of the past future, past, present and future roles psychedelics. And we had over a hundred people in the room. And so I was like graciously overwhelmed at the the positive response that, you know, folks had. And it, it really seemed to me that, you know, this was something people were eager to learn more about. So coming into my graduate work, I've focused much more um, on kind of advocating within the counseling profession about these treatments. And that's taken the form of creating a psychedelics and counseling interest network and petitioning the American Counseling Association to, to let us become an official kind of network from within them. So I've been doing a lot of that. And then in my clinical work with the, the ketamine practice, that's just been a, a blast kind of getting to, to build something from the ground up and, and from scratch. Ketamine is, is very different than MDMA and psilocybin due to being a schedule three drug. So there are, are far less restrictions and rule books for you know how it, it can be used. So I've been doing that. And, and then as I'm gearing up for my, my dissertation, I'm increasingly wanting to look at and, and get a better understanding of, for lack of a better way to put it, queer psychedelic integration. So how are folks who maybe in the past weren't, but maybe are now, how are psychedelics you know impacting a queer identity and how do people make sense of various aspects within that identity after having had, you know, maybe expansive psychedelic experiences where they felt themselves as different genders, you know, or kind of being able to explore all these different aspects or parts of themselves in, in some different ways. So that's kind of where I'm at now. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. But man, oh man, it seemed like you're going down such a beautiful path. I Remember that we had spoke about your dissertation. We were also talking about the limited feedback that you've had so far. I think a lot of people have had very transformative experiences confronting a lot of the internalized obstacles that we faced coming to terms with queerness. 
in a, in a psychedelic experience where, you know, there's so many other beautiful avenues of our identity we get to walk past and see so much of it often is contention and dissonance and dissonance, but sometimes you also just get to look and go, huh, I, I understand this part of me now. So for anyone listening resonates, I just wanted to put that out there. This could be a platform to help get uh, awareness out there. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Amazing. I wanted to circle back to your work as a ketamine facilitator and what it was like coming to an anesthesiologist that was already facilitating infusions. That type of confidence and obviously your background as a counselor, your academic work in you know, knowing how important therapy is, how did you facilitate the onset of that conversation to prove your worth to an anesthesiologist that was already facilitating infusions? Yeah, I, I think a lot of that had to do, one, I, I was very lucky and, and you know, my, my timing. I think one of the best things I've ever heard about, you know, success is success is where preparation meets luck. And, and so I, I recognize I've had a good bit of that in my background. And then also, you know, I've got privileged identities, I think, that do help with some of that confidence and, and some spaces and ways too. But I, I'd say generally speaking, you know, the, the kind of dilemma that, that we're facing here, and this is something that's you know, not unique to my work right now in this space, but with with many folks who are doing um, infusions, because infusion clinics are, are pretty pretty widely available, I, I think, throughout the U.S. But it's this difficulty and this challenge in transitioning over from a medical model to a psychotherapeutic model, and so. When I first kind of reached out to this guy, I was talking with him a little bit about, you know, just kind of this current state of research and really asking about, you know, whether or not, you know, he had somebody that was helping him kind of contextualize this in, in a more psychotherapy model. Because while he's, you know, very aware of kind of the expansive states that people might be able to access or get into, he didn't feel like he had the knowledge or background to, you know, facilitate a, a ketamine session where maybe somebody was having a challenging experience or, you know, something along those lines. So he he's very well equipped to, to manage, you know, those things from a medical perspective. But when I first met him, he was mentioning that, you know, he'd had maybe a client that had like a PTSD flashback under the influence or went back to, you know, an abuse experience. And so I think early on, there was just that ability to help provide some almost kind of uh, guardrails, you know, like bowling, you know, we put the bumpers up to, to help facilitate that process and deepen it a little bit. And then after having worked with a couple of different folks and, and facilitated the first few sessions, folks were, you know, we were both and we value, you know, patient or client feedback very highly. So we're checking, you know, what was this like having me do it and, you know, versus just having him. And so I was working with folks that were kind of also in this transition between, you know, the medical and, and psychotherapeutic model. And, and so for some of them, it was kind of difficult to, you know, begin wrapping their head around of like, all right, you want to, you want me to put eye shades on and, and headphones, how is this supposed to, to help or, or whatever. Um, but as we, you know, kind of solicited feedback from folks that we were working with, got to get a, a much better understanding of, of how the process of the psychedelic experience can be, you know, used to, to process trauma and um, attachment injuries and, you know, all, all of these different things that are, are going on, I think, under the surface of medical models, you know, that, that is something that I would talk with people about, like, oh, yeah, once I figured out what I could do in this space, I could, you know, 
start, you know, revisiting some of these things and thinking about them a little differently. So it's not to say that, you know, psychotherapy is, or I, that those more psychotherapeutic aspects are not occurring in medical models. They're just, you know, undercurrent. And so by really bringing that out kind of to the forefront and addressing it more head on, I think that is ultimately going to provide us with some better patient outcomes. And I'm working with somebody that's very interested in that. And, and so he was very excited to kind of bring me on and, and we're kind of in this co-creative process right now with one another. What is the experience like being a facilitator? Like, how do you bring yourself into that space without occupying space? Yeah, I think for me, some of the things that I'm starting to try and do is really empowering clients and trying to create some some connections between them. So one thing that is is fairly common in psychedelic assisted therapies is kind of reading Polaris Institute calls it an invocation. I don't like that word. It's it's a little dressed up for me. I just like reading a poem or something, you know. And what I'm trying to do now is is having I don't want to pick that poem for for somebody necessarily. I want to encourage them to bring something that's, you know, meaningful, representative of their intentions. And so we really try and make it a, a client-centered experience. And the other thing I'm doing is, is I'm collecting those poems and getting clients to to write them down and, you know, a moleskin notebook, write a little letter. It's it's like a guest book, right? You know, at a vacation house. And so everybody writes their poem, why they picked it and, you know, anonymously written. And so we can pass that journal in between and among clients so that they can, you know, have this sort of invisible connection through space and time with one another. And so those are some of the things that, that I do on the front end. And, and during, you know, a facilitation session, we're often really not doing too much um, other than giving attention and presence. And I think that ability comes for me from my own meditation practice. One of the the blessings in disguise from, from COVID for me was really feeling a need to begin establishing that for myself and making it a regular practice. So I had, you know, some structure throughout my day. Um, and, and so I've been sitting with a Zen meditation group pretty much weekday mornings for about an hour. And, and I think that the process of meditation and learning how to, to kind of hold space and be with yourself or, you know, just be present is, is a, a huge cornerstone of what it takes to, to facilitate a session. So in general, what I'm doing during that time is loving kindness meditation and just kind of recycling a mantra of may you be happy, may you be well, may you be at ease and just really trying to keep my focus there. And, and so being as unoccupied by anything else in the room as I can. And then what that looks like in practice too is, you know, even though they might have eye shades and headphones on, I'm, I'm doing a lot of monitoring kind of breathing patterns and trying to kind of synchronize mine with theirs, watching for nonverbal cues about, you know, emotional states and what might be going on for them so that I know when I might need to check in and maybe invite them to go a little deeper into maybe something that they're experiencing. So a lot of, a lot of paying attention to their experience and, and what I can tell is little indicators for that. And then just maintaining presence. And at times you might have to, you know, work with somebody that doesn't know where they're at or, you know, is, is encountering a challenging experience. And if I have not been grounded prior to, then it makes it much more difficult to kind of check in and, and jump in and, and do that when it's, when it's, when and if it's needed. 
So I guess that also brings me to, you know, a facilitator, like what skills or background did you have with your academic education? What skills were handy facilitating these sessions? Because it sounds like it was based around mindfulness practices. Yeah, I think, you know, it, when we're facilitating, it's it's very different because we, we are drawing on a, a different skill set than what we do during prep and integration phases. And, and so I, I think for me personally, sort of the, the thing that has been most helpful in that is I, I do some internal family systems work with clients as well. And, and within that, there's this sort of premise of the self and the idea that, you know, when we are facilitating an internal family systems exercise that as therapists, we are supposed to remain an embodied self for ourselves. And, and so in internal family systems, there are, you know, these kind of like guided meditations around, you know, what do you notice arising? What's this next thing? And, and for me, it's become an increasing ability to pay attention to myself and noticing when like, all right, I, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming uncomfortable with the silence here. Do I feel like this person needs to respond now? And then checking in and seeing like, no, 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 that, that's just that's just a part that's getting, you know, uncomfortable with silence, or maybe I feel like I wasn't clear enough in a direction that I kind of guided them or a question that I posed and then asking, you know, kind of that part or that feeling to step back a little bit and just staying with kind of what's going on in the moment a little bit more. So I think internal family systems has been really helpful in letting me develop my own sort of knowledge of like when to intervene and, and when to check in. So that is a, a theory that's has been really helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling, I, I think, to, to find things that, that I've encountered in my like education training that have particularly, at least from the counseling background, prepared me to facilitate sessions because it, it is such a, a different experience. And so, yeah, I, I think there's some overlap there, but it, it's, it's not a full Venn diagram by any, any stretch. Yeah. I mean, not to further complicate, I guess, the, the, the predicament we're in, but Schwartz, the, the founder for Internal Family Systems, you know, shows so much gratitude and appreciation for what he's come to call IFS from prior psychedelic journeys. So we're really trying hard to find a therapy, like a theory or a type of therapy or a practice that is non-psychedelic based. But here we are talking about IFS, which by its roots was somewhere somewhere within an Ibogaine and a DMT journey. A couple other sorts of frameworks that, that I, I, I use, not, not necessarily so much for facilitating, but to mm. help prep and, and the other things. Yeah, I'd love to get into that. Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy is is one that I like a lot. You know, kind of this notion that like suffering is our resistance to pain and we're able to accept pain, our suffering decreases. And in terms of I also really enjoy like existential and humanistic perspectives, so I think that also ties in really well with acceptance and commitment therapy because there's within ACT, you know, an emphasis on acting in accordance with your values to create meaning. And, and so I think that ties really well over into existential humanistic perspectives. And, and so from there, I'm often kind of thinking through or helping clients kind of contextualize their experience within what are called the givens of existence. And so the, the polarities of those have been originally, it was like 
death, freedom, isolation, and, and meaninglessness. And so now we kind of, on the other ends, we pull, you know, birth, responsibility, connection, connection, and meaning. And finding sort of this, this middle ground between both of those poles can be really helpful in, in helping clients begin to understand this, this sort of dialectic process that I, I think occurs as we, we engage with and kind of make sense of those different extremes of those givens. And so that's that's also a, a touch point and a cornerstone that I, I come back to with clients a lot and, and have written about too in, in some of my academic work. I had a question. I totally forgot it because I saw the the Midnight Gospel sticker on your <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on, Emma, come on, Emma, you're, you know it, you know it. Okay. Well, it's great that you bring up the um, different practices, I guess, that have helped you with the preparatory work with your clients, because the next thing I think I'd like to hear more about is like what that process looks like at your clinic right now. And maybe ideally, what do the conversations look like when you're onboarding with a client and their therapist isn't very familiar with uh, cap or really any psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. How do you help onboard that preparatory work too? Because, you know, we're, you're, you're going to go through this session with the client. You're really going to help them explore their psyche with cap. And then they will typically return back to working with their therapist after the program. So how can the therapist be also best supported in preparatory and integration practices? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so I, I think those are are some challenges that I'm I'm new enough that I don't have a, a bunch of experience with. We've we've only really been up and running with the center for about a month now. So I, I think in in terms of what we will be hoping to do in in those situations is you know if folks have therapists, primary therapists that are you know, completely unfamiliar with CAP, then working to provide a little bit of consultation with them and discussion around what we're doing. And with those folks whose therapists might be less informed or less comfortable with the, the kind of subject matter, then prolonging a little bit, maybe the prepper integration phases so that they have some more time with kind of specialized areas there. But at other times, you know, I'm going to be working with someone here soon that, you know, they have a really good relationship with their primary therapist and they've been receiving, you know, infusions for, for quite a while. And, and so this next time we're going to do very, very limited kind of prep and integration because she has such a good rapport with that other person. And I'm able to touch in with them around, you know, this is what happened with the experience. And, and she and I have a, a fair relationship as well. So I think as, as centers like this are, are getting established, building a network of community providers that you know, we refer out to and folks refer in is, is going to be important. I do think you could likely bump into, you know, some challenges there. You know, if, if someone was working with a primary therapist that was not only like maybe not knowledgeable or, you know, skilled in maybe some of these areas, maybe actually held some negative opinions about it, right? Then we might we might have some conversations around, you know, how we, we bucket and, and bracks Ooh, bracket some of those things. And this, depending on the relationship, I, I don't know how I would approach that conversation on the whole, because, you know, one of the things that we can bump into in therapy is we don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. And, and so I think it is important to at least have, if it were the case, you know, that 
you know, a person's primary therapist was not going to talk about, you know, integration or a person's ketamine experience with them. If that was a hard no, at least having the, those firm boundaries established and, and set so that people know kind of the roles, responsibilities of folks on their treatment team. And, and I could see some instances where, you know, we, we might suggest that this is maybe not something that we do right now because you have maybe a, a really good relationship with this primary therapist and us coming in might you know, kind of jar their treatment plan or rock the boat in some ways that might be disorienting or unhelpful for the client. And so at that point, maybe what we do is, you know, provide more education to the therapist and, and try and engage them for a while. Totally. Yeah. It sounds like it's a, it's a bit blurry, I guess, the line between advocating for your patient and overstepping with the transferent relationship they have with maybe their provider. Cause you know, like they might have already built a very strong rapport with them. And now this new topic of, you know, working with integrating an altered state buff to hopefully treat one of an ailment that they're struggling with that even as a topic could bring up so much contention in that relationship. I mean, just to bring up an example, Gabby's podcast with, Oscar Bullhansen talked about how when he's working with these clients, sometimes he encourages them to tell their therapist that they're going on a, on a meditation retreat or they're practicing breath work and they actually change the language because they, they won't say I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing MDMA or I'm going to be doing uh, psilocybin. I'm practicing some, I picked up a Stan Groff book and now this is why I'm experiencing these new things that I want to share with you because they're so scared because of the remnants, obviously of the war on drugs and how it's like really impacted so many very caring facilitators that really do want to be great therapists. But unfortunately they have to backlog so much of the stigma that was indoctrinated into even their practice as they were growing up. Like then they were getting their license to practice. They were hearing that horse tranquilizer will kill you. MDMA will rot your brain and acid and mushrooms will melt you to pieces. So, you know, it's like pretty <laughs> hard to, back, to backtrack from that. I mean, you have 40 years of experience thinking that th these are all real things. And I guess the dissonance of having to disconnect that is something that I'm sure a lot of facilitators to this day are going to be struggling with, even if they want to be the best facilitator possible. It's so difficult to take all of that confirmation bias from your past out of your practice. So I can totally understand how that could be this kind of blurry line. It sounds a bit difficult to, to walk safely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think you're touching on too, you know, some, some other maybe more like challenging pieces of the integration process is that, you know, how do these clients explain those experiences, not only to their therapist, but their friends, their family members. Right. I mean, so you know, I've worked with someone where where ketamine was was what worked. It it's saved her life and greatly improved her her quality of living. And this was just you know from the medical model. But she feels maybe guilty at times about you know having been able to access a treatment that was particularly expensive, or doesn't know how to you know convey the way that it's worked or convey her experience to other people. And and so I think you know those are also things that we need to consider as we're 
you know, kind of opening people up, we also have to think about, you know, how are these people going to go back into, you know, the the rest of their their world and their lives in this new, maybe more open sort of state and, and how that's going to impact the people around them. I mean, you know, rule one from like family therapy is, you know, when one person's getting better, that shakes the balance off of everybody else. And I think that's something we're likely to see in, in psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, as, as folks are coming in for individual work, but are going back out into a community. Totally. And I was also thinking, you know, I, I once struggled a lot with understanding how a facilitator or a psychotherapist can really explain to um, their client what the experience is going to feel like in the session. I'm like, how can you explain something that is so ineffable? But I'm also realizing, you know, like once they undergo that experience, I'm kind of like, oh, I, I can see now why everything was so ambiguous and vague and abstract, like in the description, like it's pretty difficult to put any of this into words, let alone just someone else's words, you know, subjectivity and all that stuff. But on top of that, what you just brought up is so interesting that I hadn't considered as far as integration goes. It's not just in integrating the experience into your day-to-day -day life. It's also learning and accepting the same way that your uh, facilitator tried to explain the nuance of your psychedelic experience to you before you underwent it, you're also going to face that same obstacle telling, talking to other people about it after you've benefited from the experience, which also like really doubles down and like kind of emphasizes the rabbit hole that you might find yourself on trying to explain it to someone who hasn't experienced that and what you know, not, not feeling like you're getting the immediate support as you're still in that afterglow state or, you know, this very impressionable state where you're feeling a lot better, but you might be, you know, hitting some walls when you're trying to tell your friends or family and they're like, wow, you sound like, you sound like an addict. You sound like, you sound like you have a drug problem. It sounds like you think you're only better because of drugs. But for, to my knowledge, these are bad drugs. All drugs are bad. And your brain might be melting because you're over here telling me how much happier you are. And clearly there's something wrong with you because you were struggling before this session. So the only explanation is you're somehow now worse. So I feel like it's so interesting that that must be such a major part of the integration process as well as, you know, how to talk to your friends and family about your experience. Now that you've had it, you benefited, or maybe you didn't as much, whatever that might've been actually explaining it is such a bigger part of it too, that we don't realize is so such a struggle when we leave the community and we're faced with people who really haven't, haven't seen it before and really been able to wrap their head around it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think too, you know, that, that notion that like, that's, some, that's also something that takes place in the preparation phase too. And one of the things that I'm coming to understand about this work outside of clinical research trials is that, you know, the, the, the three-stage model that we have of preparation, facilitation, or the drug-assisted session, and then integration. Preparation and integration, they fold in on themselves and move and interact. And, and so I, I think while it is helpful to kind of conceptualize those things, you know, conceptualize those stages in terms of the therapy process, when it comes down to, you know, somebody that might be coming in for, you know, ketamine infusions every other month 
for a booster or something like that, then, you know, if I'm meeting in the middle of the series, is this preparation, is this integration, is this a midpoint, what, what do we call this? And, and so I, I think, yeah, too, you know, as, as we're working with folks who are, you know, maybe taking psychedelic drugs in, in naturalistic settings or contexts, you know, they, they come in and, you know, we might do an integration session, talk about a past one, but again, you know, if they're, you know, using it again in the future, what we've done in integration is, preparation for the next sort of experience or journey, right? Of how do we make sense of this? What do we do next time? What do we do, you know, if this feeling arises, how might we approach it differently? And, and so I'm getting a little better appreciation for the messiness that is preparation and integration and the the notion that those are, are while they're helpful clinical terms in, mm-hmm. in reality and in practice, they, they are not quite so neat. <laughs> What a great sentence that can be applied to such a wide variety of topics in the psychedelic research field right now. You know, it's great to divide them, but when you really think about it, is there really any? Is there really anything to divide? <laughs> it just sounds to me like the integration and preparation work is bringing more of yourself <clears throat> and your background into supporting the person that is going to be undergoing this experience. And then when they are undergoing it, it's less about what you can do. And it's more about what you will do in the future with them and what you have done already. Right. And then that space during the session is really about them and what they have picked up on, what they're ready to look at and what they're, what they're going to be talking to you about afterwards. And, you know, where do you draw the line? Oh, if it's two weeks after, then it's no longer integration. If it's three weeks before, it is officially preparation. What do you call the space in between? It? I'll say one of the things that I, I really like about my position and, and where I'm at right now is that it's it's very much kind of a startup. We're, we're a lean team. And, and so what I try and bring into that space is really advocating for trauma-informed care. Because I think that is something that is important not only to provide our clients, but it's also a way to cultivate a culture within a practice that allows for much more open communication between, you know, its its members. And so I, I want my, you know, front office person to be comfortable with, you know, putting a foot down and talking with their anesthesiologist or myself about like, hey, this is something I've seen here on a patient facing perspective, or this is something that's impacting me. And so making sure that there's, you know, kind of that open door policy and that we're, we're really well adept at, at giving and, and constructing feedback. And, and one of the things that I think has been helpful in this process too, is the, the process of like constantly planning, scrapping and evolving and, and not becoming too attached to mm. the idea you had three weeks ago when it becomes evident that like, this isn't practical. And, and so I, I don't need to hang on to this just because I, it's avoiding a lot of sunk cost fallacy and, and moving forward and, and coming up with a new strategy when you see something old isn't working. And, and I'm able to do that in this position because it, it's a small team. I mean, right now it is four of us and, and that is it. And so you know, we're not tied to funders or board members or anything 
something, you know, along those lines, like field trip might be. And, and so I think that process of just constantly revising and revisioning quality improvement is, mm. is something that we were all really heavily kind of borrowing from the medical model because they do that really well, you know, change one or two things, figure out what worked, didn't go better, and then come back to the drawing board over and over and over again until you have a process that's optimized. You are very much so embodying the the ideal facilitator where you're just very excited and open to changing your own practice and admitting to it openly, kind of like your anesthesiologist and said, you know, I didn't know how to help my patient. And now I'm hearing you in front of me offering to fill that gap and like admitting that and being that vulnerable to your own process is really how to keep the patient constantly focused and centered in your work and how to keep the person that you're trying to heal and the the person that deserves that space to to really be the one spotlighted. So I was going to ask as well, what do you think would be a way to mitigate the losses and to really increase accessibility with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy considering the amount of time it really takes? Yeah, I think that's that's a big a big one, um, and and you know especially as you know folks, as this treatment is so like the the facilitation component is is so time intensive. You know, I, I think when it comes down to you know we're we're always in this flux between what is what is maybe going to provide the best outcomes and what is you know most realistic. So yeah, I, I think it would probably provide better outcomes if I was able to meet in person with someone, you know, for a session every other week before we do their infusion sessions. But in reality, you know, if I have somebody that is coming, you know, eight hours down for their infusion sessions and going to stay in a hotel for a week, like I, I can't, I can't do that. And and so you know, some of the things that I, I think are helpful in terms of promoting access, you know, maybe being willing to conduct some of your preparatory or integration phases through telehealth and, you know, being upfront and describing like, you know, I I think you might have a better experience if you're able to come in and and see the space, because I I really do think that is important. But, you know, maybe what we need to do is build, you know, a virtual, you know, because you can do virtual tours of homes. So, Take a virtual tour of our office, see virtually, you know, what the infusion bay is going to look like. So I I think those are going to be some ways to do that. And, you know, I I think other pieces are, I I really like the notion of working on sliding scales and and trying to really provide, you know, spaces for people across income spectrums to to get access. And so, you know, one of the things that I I would like to see, you know, my clinic do in the future is is get to a point where, you know, we're able to offer pro bono services. I, I do offer like pro bono therapy services where can't quite do that for the ketamine pieces yet, but having, you know, folks with more means who are on the higher end of that scale, you know, subsidize and start pooling in, you know, income for somebody that doesn't. So I, I think those are some of the, some ways to kind of go around that. And and the other thing too, you know, as, as they're, you know, FDA approval process for MDMA and psilocybin is still kind of in the mix. We don't know the qualifications that they're going to require for people to facilitate sessions. And and so I've been kind of taking and and running with this metaphor recently around the idea that preparation and integration, my work with somebody is kind of that of a swim coach. And then in a facilitation session, my work is like a lifeguard. And and so realizing that those skill sets can be different. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping to do to, again, you know, promote patient autonomy and things like that, 
are to, within our clinic, have facilitators and then therapists that can also facilitate. And so we're creating sort of these tiered things where, you know, if, if somebody has like a background in, you know, yoga, mindfulness practices, and, you know, some, some degree of like clinical knowledge and experience, but maybe isn't licensed or something along those lines, creating a way for that person to facilitate sessions and then kind of check in with uh, the therapist beforehand around what were the intentions set that this client had creating, you know, a report out back to the therapist. And so those are some other ways I think too. And then one of the unique things with, with ketamine too, is since it's a schedule three, there's, there's no playbook, like there will be for psilocybin and MDMA, which are going to require, you know, therapy to be administered with it. And, you know, folks have been getting ketamine infusions by themselves in a room with no one around for a while. And most of the time it does well and it's effective. And I can definitely see places and opportunities where that might also be a therapeutic goal and an outcome, right? You know, if I'm working with somebody that has difficulty with autonomy or self-efficacy, maybe attachment, you know, problems, what they might get out of being able to, you know, solo an infusion with eye shades and a headphone that might be really beneficial and meaningful to them to have done something like that on their own. And so I, I want to create opportunities that really promote client autonomy within this clinic so that they have the ability to work with us to feel, to find what they think is going to be most helpful and most feasible and, and recognizing that, you know, we are limited by time, money, and finances. And so as I'm conceptualizing this too, you know, as therapists, we're used to having a caseload, you know, maybe 30-ish people, if you're working in community mental health, probably a lot higher than that. But I think too, you know, as, as we are looking at practical applications of this, you know, it's, it's really difficult for me to, you know, set aside maybe nine to 12 hours in a week to facilitate sessions with one client if I have a caseload of other folks. And, and so I, I think what I both enjoyed, I was going to say challenging about this is just the logistics is, is new and, and different. And so I think finding ways to offset costs for folks through sliding scales and insurance is something eventually I think that would be more important to look at, but, you know, insurance isn't really covering stuff for ketamine. If you can, if you can work an insurance company to cover for pain treatment is mm -hmm. my understanding, but it's much more difficult to get them to cover infusions for mood disorders. And so we, we don't do intramuscular or spravato right now. And so it's just IV. And so unless somebody has that pain background or something, that's not insurance is also something that we're not able to facilitate with them. And, and so on that end, that becomes more kind of professional advocacy and, and working with, you know, insurance companies and things that are uh, a scale up and above, you know, what we're doing necessarily at the clinic. So offsetting costs and, and promoting autonomy and, and how they choose to engage with these services. Yeah, absolutely. There's also something to be said where the patient has no way of knowing what this experience is going to be like. So there's not really a way for them to know whether or not they'll need support or if they'll need preparation or if they'll need integration. Like it might be even harder to explain that when your background isn't in mindfulness practice, it isn't in therapy, it isn't in trauma-informed care. And how can, how can your patient really be consenting to not having support if they have no idea what they're about to get themselves into? And I feel like on the other side is it's incredible that 
we can provide support during, before, and after, or throughout the the, the healing journey. This time that's is very tolling and tasking on the facilitator, where it's a lot of money for someone who's helping to prepare and integrate the psychedelic session to also be there for those hours. When oftentimes, like you said, you're quiet as a little mouse in the background, kind of just sitting there in the room. So it's so interesting to see like how the cards will unfold in the future with what the credentials would be necessary for a facilitator and even how you could actually bring up that autonomy and invite the client to really ask themselves, do I need someone in the room this time? And really leave it out to them to figure that out and see, which is totally different from an infusion center where you don't really have the option. You're being told this is what you're going to do. Here, you'll be by yourself. And then you'll, after 30 or 40 minutes, you can go home. Yeah. And, and I think for me, one of the things that, that led me a little bit more to kind of exploring and, and bringing in this, this facilitator, this non-therapist facilitator role was checking in with myself. What was I really concerned about going on in that room if I wasn't there? And, and at the end of the day, those concerns were that I couldn't be helpful, that I couldn't, you know, respond to something. And if we really believe that, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy helps people get in touch with an inner healer or, you know, their self and inner healing intelligence, then it doesn't matter whether or not I'm in there. And so for me, I had to be like, okay, no, no, what's coming up for me is maybe some like disappointment that like, oh, well, now I'm in a PhD program. And actually, I really think that this could be, you know, somebody else that has a lesser skill set. So so maybe I'm envious, maybe I didn't have to do all of this. And, and so recognizing in me sort of that own like, need to save somebody or need to, you know, provide support and, and realizing that like, that's my own stuff. And am I really so arrogant to think that, you know, I'm the person that's going to be able to help this person through this experience mm. and, and that it has to be me or it has to be somebody with this particular background? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, for, for folks coming in for infusions, they're often sitting with, you know, a spouse or a parent and, and that person can be just as effective or more with maybe a little bit of coaching than, you know, somebody that they've never met. And, and so I, I think some of this too, for me has been letting go of some of my own, like, I need to be doing this because it's something that I need to have control over and, and recognizing that that's, that's not an okay reason for me to say that it needs to be this way. This again, circles back to the layers of your ability to detach from things that you thought needed to be done in order to really be the best psychedelic assisted psychotherapist you could be for your patients. When reality might've had to backstep for a minute and be like, I might not even have to be in that room. And that might cause me to reestablish how I feel about what my, what my job is really when I'm occupying that space and whether or not it actually has to be my job at all. Admitting that the same way that your anesthesiologist was capable of, I have, I have run into issues during certain sessions and I was fully out. It, it was outside of my bandwidth. And it's so interesting hearing now the way you were explaining your job as a facilitator and even as a preparatory and integration therapist. It sounds so much on its very basic level that what infusion centers can't offer as much as uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy clinics can. 
is harm reduction where Mm -hmm. the preparatory work and like right now i don't know if you can see but there are like fireworks going off my brain where i'm like oh maybe this is it it's not just whether or not it's intramuscular or intravenous on a very basic level you're providing a safe space for someone physically so like the set but you're also providing them with evidence-based research and explanation and helpful tools that they're not capable of really knowing. So you're really sharing your wisdom with them and you're bringing back a lot of the protocols and safety measures that we're taking up in the medical space, but also allowing so much of the, of the patient's autonomy to exist in those sessions as well. And it really sounds like it's, it's like this dream of harm reduction where it's not just Here's an unadulterated product in a safe space to use it. When you're in the room, what you bring is everything you can do before and how much you can reduce the risks and harm associated with use. Because like you said, if we think psychedelics allow people to heal themselves and awaken their inner healing potential, well, then we should really uh, allow them to explore that space and check ourselves and our attachments and our egos right at the door as a facilitator and be like, okay, like this is really about them and everything they need is within them. So it's really like beautiful harm reduction. So thank you for contributing that to the space. Yeah. I, I think those, that, that's a, a perfect way to kind of think through and, and summarize some of that is, you know, emphasizing harm reduction and autonomy simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I feel like there might not be a better space to start closing in than right there because like my heart's so open um, and full. So I will ask, what do you what do you hope to see five years from now? And like how do you hope that you can contribute to that to that site? Sure. So so questions that I don't quite know for myself yet. But I, I think for me personally, one of the things that I'm I'm hoping to bring back into my my toolkit and and integrate more with psychedelic work is components of wilderness therapy so I, I my my sort of dream job is to be able to go and and you know I, I think whether you know where you put the backpacking sort of excursion on either end is is maybe variant you know but having a, a retreat center style sort of place where folks are able to come to and we do you know a few days of like wilderness back Packing on on either end of the facilitated session, or or maybe not facilitated session, if that's what they've decided for, for their autonomy there. And and so I, I think what I'm I'm really looking forward to is seeing the ways that folks start to creatively apply this once it gets out of controlled research clinics, because there there are so many things that go on in the experience that are so influential and so important in in curating set and setting. And and so I think our clinical trials right now are incredibly limited in in terms of they look at the, they're interested in the drug effects at, at mm-hmm. the end, like, you know, it, it's been pushed through an FDA regulatory process. And so yeah. they look at, you know, what is the risk, how do responses differ on dose, not how do responses differ when, you know, the client knows the playlist beforehand or not. And, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to people becoming a little bit more creative and using this as a, a tool and a, a larger toolkit. Um, 
So I, I think those are going to be some things. And, and I'm really going to be looking forward to seeing how Oregon continues to progress its legislation around their psilocybin centers. Because in, in terms of social justice and, and access, I think their model is much more equitable and accessible than what the FDA is going to come out with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, within Oregon's thing, you know, I'm not sure if these rules have been written yet, but it very well may be the case that within Oregon centers, folks will be allowed to, you know, consume it on on site without having a facilitator present or just having somebody check in intermittently. And and so I, I think those would also be some some interesting developments as as the field progresses over the next few years. Totally. We were talking about harm reduction at large and limiting the risks associated with use and how education and preparation goes such a far way into that, into the actual space and how much integration, obviously, to after the experience really helps. Um, Yeah. So we've talked about like, you know, what happens if we add, you know, a massage therapist to our team and and folks can come in for, you know, a 60 minute massage or like some, some body work and then do, you know, their infusion and have that be part of, you know, the prep that they're doing. And and so I I think there's so many other things, variables that um, can get added into the mix that are, are likely to be impactful and helpful that are unable to be researched in clinical settings due to just FDA regulations. Yeah. Yeah. You can only study one variable at a time there, right? So for people maybe looking to send over that email or have that first conversation with an anesthesiologist that's you know practicing ketamine infusion, do you have any advice for them as they take their practice a bit more seriously and try to become a facilitator and or integration therapist in already established ketamine infusion center? Yeah, I I think starting that conversation by really knowing your skill set and what you have to offer that they don't yet have. And so whether that is your ability to, to work with trauma or, you know, having a background in like addictions work or something, all of these, I think can be really helpful. So, so knowing your skill set and, and knowing what you're going to be bringing to the table before you start kind of engaging in those discussions, I, I think is important. And then, you know, working to remain kind of grounded in the literature too. And this is something I think that is is particularly challenging with with ketamine at the moment because there there is so little literature on ketamine assisted psychotherapy. The vast majority of it is on ketamine infusions. And and so from what I understand, the jury is still kind of out on the degree to which the subjective experience of the ketamine is impactful in treatment. And and I think that's a challenge, but also recognizing the the caveats and and why that gap in the literature is there. It's because, you know, we're we're not going to fund it, right? I mean, it's already a schedule three drug. And so there aren't necessarily incentives to, to generate that literature. So being upfront with kind of, you know, what skills you have to offer, where the literature is at, and then also, you know, knowing sort of the history and story behind why the literature is, is where it's at and, and there and, you know, coming and saying like, you know, this, this might be something that the literature is, is maybe still questioning, but I think there are some really good rationales for why you should have me on board and, and then starting to point more towards other psychedelic assisted therapies and, and showing that like, hey, you know, we, we do know that having a, a greater mystical experience is, 
impactful for treatment outcomes with this other particular drug. And, you know, we don't know that yet with ketamine, but that's maybe because the research just hasn't been done. Yeah, definitely. And I think the second question, last question for this beautiful podcast will be, if you could speak to Ben back in 2012 and offer him any advice and insight to where he might be right now, what would some of that advice be? Ooh. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this the other day as I was designing a playlist for someone's ketamine trip and just thinking like, man, if, if college me could see doing this, it'd be really <laughs> interesting. How did I turn this into a, a job? So, so I, I think it would be really just an encouragement to stay open and be be willing to take calculated risks. And I think that is a quality and a characteristic that has been really helpful for me throughout my career is, is that willingness to, to take some risk. And, you know, this is no field, no, no approaches without risk. And, and so, you know, making sure that we were aware of what those are and plotting kind of our moves. And so I, I think other things that I'd tell, you know, 2012 undergrad me, is like, just hang on, it'll get there. Go <laughs> slow, go slow. Life is like one very, very long trip. Stay grounded. Stay grounded, (laughs) stay the course, and be more patient. Patience is not one of my virtues, but it's one that I'm learning and and working on. Okay, well, if anyone wants to contact you, or maybe even they want to join the... Interest network. The interest network. How should they do that? What should they do? Yeah. So I I don't do social media. I can't keep up with it and I don't like it, but folks could email me at ben.hearn, that's H-E-A-R-N, at oldandnewtables.com. And then to join the interest network, folks could email psychedelic.counselor at gmail.com. And we just put out our second newsletter. I sent it out yesterday. Got a, a really cool interview with Bill Richards in there about his book, Sacred Knowledge. He published a, a few years ago. So yeah, it just came out with that next round of newsletters. So we'd be happy to add some extra folks. That's amazing. And I miss anything. Is there anything you'd like to say or offer before we close up for the day? No, I, other than just saying, you know, thank you for kind of getting to meet you. I've, I've enjoyed all of our conversations and, and getting to learn more about you as well. You're doing a lot of, of really cool work and promoting this growing field yourself. So thank you for that dedication on, on your end and helping this grow and, and having me on. Oh, shucks. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you all for listening. If you liked our podcast and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, jump over to our Psychedelic Grad community. If you're looking for psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings, you can sign up for the Psychedelic Grad newsletter with the link in the description. If you liked what you heard on today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review. I hope to see you back here for our next episode.